Welcome to the LDSI Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. Today, I had a very special guest on, Julie Beeling. Julie Beeling wrote a book called Beneath Sheep's Clothing, and I thought we had a wonderful conversation. It was hard-hitting, but I think this conversation is going to make you think. I will tell you that when I read the book, I had to think, long and hard, and that's why we got off topic about civil rights for blind people. Because one of the things that she mentions in her book is that one is that communists find people that are oppressed and then they have different types of communists. The travelers are the ones that get talked about the most, according to my interpretation of her book. They're the ones that go around giving speeches. Some of them are violent. Some of them will burn down things, just like you saw in 2020, in regards to the George Floyd issue. Well, I told her about some civil rights things for the blind and some things that have been done in in recent years because I wanted her opinion on it. And I'll let you listen to the podcast to find out what she said about that. No, this is not a bash against the National Federation of the Blind, which I am a member of in name only right now, but I am a member, and we talk a little bit about why I have backed away, not necessarily taken my name off the National Federation of Blind, but backed away. So we got off on a tangent because I thought it was important to, because civil rights is something that I'm passionate about being blind, and then we got right back on track with the book. And you'll find that we talked a lot about Christianity. We talked about how the media misrepresents people, especially in groups that that are out on the fringes, which doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the group is in the fringes. But we really stressed, and she really stressed, and I agreed with her at the end of this podcast, due process. So yeah, maybe people like Warren Jepps, well, certainly Warren Jepps, um, he's a bad man. He's evil. And I do believe there's going to be a special place in hell for Warren Jepps. But that doesn't mean you don't do due process. I am not a fan of David Koresh. I think David Koresh is a nut job. But again, when these allegations come forth, or when the, when these reports come forth to law enforcement, these allegations... You've got to do due process, and we talked about that in the podcast. And if you need a refresher, the first part of this podcast goes over how I became a Democrat to being a, from being a Democrat to being a conservative. Why? Because it's going to lead right into the conversation, and I think it's good to have a refresher. Now, one of the criticisms I get is your podcasts are too long. Yeah, that's why I sometimes splice them up into different files. And then I'll have the whole podcast. But this one's so important, like the last podcast, I'm just going to keep the whole thing up there. And here's the deal, folks. For some reason, people have this notion that they have to listen to the whole entire podcast at once. That is not true. You know that. I know that. There's been podcasts that I thought were too long, and I've come back and listened to it later. Well, that's the beauty of a podcast. It's not like listening to a radio show where you hear the show, and you have to listen to that because you want to hear that thing or that one sentence that you know that someone's going to say, the host, 
or you want to hear that one guest, you're going to be glued to the radio because the talk show host didn't tell you what time that guest was coming on. You just know that guest is coming up next. Well, guess what? With a podcast, you can pause it. You can come back. You can fast forward. You can rewind. So I get a little irritated when people say your podcasts are too long. Now, will I split files up in the future? Yeah. It's just that this one I thought was very important to keep it all intact. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. And hey, if it's going too long, stop it and come back. And you know, you can actually, let's say you have a four-hour drive coming up. Or you've got a two-hour drive. Hey, why don't you take advantage of that and listen to this podcast for your two-hour drive? You can download it to your phone or your favorite audio playing device. And listen to it while you drive. What a concept. Yeah. For those of you that are LDS, didn't we used to do that a lot growing up as kids? Our, church, our parents had put in a talk tape from John By the Way or something, and we'd listen to it. It was probably about an hour long. Yeah. So, while you're driving on a, that two-hour trip, or however long it might be, why don't you occupy your time and listen to this podcast? And I really think that we had a lot of good things to talk about. It is the LDS Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, podcasting to you from Billings, Montana. Today, I have a very special guest on. I know I said I was going to have her uh, two podcasts go, and then we ended up talking about polygamy on a last podcast, or the last podcast. But Julie Belling, is that how you pronounce your last name, Belling? Beeling. Beeling. Okay. Yeah. Julie Beeling is my guest, and we're going to talk about something very hard-hitting, but I think we need a discussion on this because I have great concerns about what's going on in this country. And Julie, just to give you some background, I know I've told you this on the podcast, the audience, but it wouldn't hurt to get a refresher. I used to be a Democrat, right? and I actually, believe it or not, even though I was a Democrat, I was a huge fan of Glenn Beck. I don't know if that surprises you. That is interesting. Yeah. And the reason was, is because you've got to remember back in 2006, all the talk shows, the mainstream talk shows, I'm not talking about Sam Bushman and some of the outliers. I'm talking about the mainstream talk shows, with the exception of perhaps Michael Savage, were all Bush cheerleaders, weren't they? Oh, yeah. And it yeah. pissed me off because I was a Democrat <laughs> and I always I knew ever since the Iraq war that there was something wrong with President Bush. Yeah. Now, part of it was my biasness against him. Yes. But I just had a gut feeling something wasn't right. And in the midst of all this, even before I became a Glenn Beck fan, I read Ron, uh, Ron Paul. Mm -hmm. who I was somewhat a fan of, even though I was a Democrat, because I found him very sincere, saying that he was against the Gulf War, but it wasn't the talking points rhetoric. It was about the Constitution. And I thought, really? Right. I never heard that before. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that was back. And then at that same time, actually, I was a big Glenn Beck fan, even though I disagreed with most of what he said. But you know something? He had wisdom. And I yeah. really appreciated his wisdom about how to do life and even some of the things that he would talk about, like uh, going with your gut feeling and following your instincts. 
And yes, being LDS, I knew what he was getting at, and I could relate to that, and I could relate to preparing for food storage. And I thought, well, okay, uh, these are things I actually agree with, even though yeah. I'm a Democrat, because let's face it, Social Security may not be there someday. Somebody may corrupt it. Somebody may do something. Who knows? Right. So I was not opposed of his wisdom at all. And to be honest, Julie, I felt that, you know, I felt like when I would listen to Glenn Beck, he was in the room with me personally, having hard hitting discussions with me about saying, listen, you better pay attention. I don't want to say he was like a father figure, but somebody that would keep me in line in some respects. But what really got me going uh, as far as going down the conservative road after reading Cleon Skousen's the uh, uh, what is it? The 5,000 year leap. Yeah. <clears throat> that got me thinking a little bit. And then what really got me down the conservative road is the way that the Bundy family was being treated. Oh yeah. And, that was horrible. and I was listening to Brian Hyde, who I've had on the podcast and he brought up a good point. He said, you may not like Clive and Bundy. You may not agree with his stance on not paying his grazing fees, but you could be next. And I thought, yeah. And by this time, I was coming around to more of the conservative philosophy. And I thought, well, you know, I've read about Randy Weaver and what they did to him was highly despicable. Mm. Even as a even if I were a Democrat, I would think that what the government did was out of bounds, at least most of what they did. Right. Uh, I still think that they had reasons to be concerned about Randy in the beginning, but they had no right to go as far as they did. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, we could sit here and argue, well, Randy Weaver bought it on himself. And to some extent, I agree. But you don't go shoot a bunch of people and a woman with a baby in her arms, for heaven's right. sakes. You've right. got to follow the rules of engagement. Yes. And um so just so you know where I'm coming from, uh, Julie, I am mostly conservative. I would say about 70 to 80 percent conservative. Mm -hmm. And we need to have a discussion because if we're going to talk about what's going on with the country, we've got to bring people like you in. Even though I may have questions about some of the things I've read in your book, Beneath Sheep's Clothing, I think we need a discussion, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, so, and one of the things that I have tried to do is to be very friendly to the conservative voices out there in and out of the LDS community because that have something to do with the LDS church because I don't think that you folks are getting enough attention. And I think it's you folks that we need to talk to the most. The other people are getting plenty of attention on other podcasts. So some people, oh, well, Kevin, why don't you have a different perspective? Because those people are already getting attention on different podcasts. Go listen to them. You know who I'm talking about. So, uh, Julie, uh, I, good book, by the way. I'm not just saying that because uh, you're here. I really liked it. You made me think quite a bit. Thank and you. And one question I want to ask you before we really dive into this, what surprised you the most as you were doing your research? I mean, <laughs> I realize that might be a loaded question. <laughs> well, at what point? So... I mean, there's well, my... let's talk about how Christians were treated. Let's talk about the Rockefellers and the media. And let's start with those two topics. Yeah. So my book is called Beneath Sheep's Clothing, the Communist Takeover of, Cult of Culture in the USSR and Parallels in Today's America. And 
just a little bit about my background. I served an LDS mission in Russia in the late 90s, and I came back to the States and I got a dual master's in Russian language and literature and Russian and East European studies. And I wrote my master's thesis on underground Christian movements in the Soviet Union and their survival tactics and the tactics of the Soviet state to attempt to destroy them. So, I mean, it, studying communism in depth like I did in grad school, um, particularly with primary sources, um, studying Soviet literature, Soviet history, and just delving in, that was that was a shock. And that was actually, I would say, traumatizing. I That was a very traumatizing time. I think I cried every day for the semester when I was taking Soviet history and the Soviet dissident literature um, mm -hmm. and my Soviet dissident literature class being taught by a former Soviet dissident who escaped the USSR by the skin of her teeth. But learning what communism had done, the, the absolute bloodbath, absolute carnage, the deadliest form of government in the world's history that was never taught to me in school that I was only really discovering because I mean, I I was going delving into the primary sources and then hearing stories from my former Soviet dissident professor. It, that was a shock of a lifetime to really and truly begin to understand the horrors of communism, the, the human toll, and of course, what they did to Christians and the, the sacrifices of Christians who insisted on, on carrying on their faith during those 70 years of, of communist rule in the Soviet Union. That was a shock of a lifetime. Then we have another shock of a lifetime when fast forward to 2008 and I'm seeing these same anti-religious tactics happening in America. I take a closer look and it's a hundred times worse than I thought. I wrote most of my book in 2009 through 2011. And, but then I set it aside because it, it, I couldn't quite finish it. Then another shock of a lifetime was a year ago when I was completing my book and seeing how much worse things had gotten. Um, there's several shocks in there for you. So. Yeah. And, uh, gosh, I was reading the book when, as, when I first started reading your book, I, it was about one degrees or something. It was very, no, it was in the twenties and here in Montana, it gets very cold. Oh yeah. And I was actually outside mm -hmm. testing my heating vest that I got for Christmas because that was perfect. And I just kept thinking, gosh, could I go through what these people went through and 80 below weather Fahrenheit? And am I strong enough to go through all this? I'm not sure that I am. Uh, no. Sadly so. Yeah. Most uh, people did not survive the gulag. No. And those that did, I, I would love to talk to them because that's very brutal conditions. And I'm thinking, gosh, I hope I wouldn't have caved, but I'm... I do not do well with cold, and especially with the way they were treated, it's making me think about just how important it is to stand up for your values and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's talk about that, because uh, you mentioned, I don't want to give the whole book away, but you mm -hmm. mentioned that there were people that were arrested and they were positioned in such a way that they could not stretch out, so they were held in a position like the crisscross applesauce position, something yeah, like that. There and, were a lot of torture tactics and there were, yeah, there were like isolation cells where, where prisoners were not allowed, unable to sit down or unable to move for. Yeah. Long and then of time. I think uh, 
you I think I read somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, they were tied to something and this was months at a time. This wasn't just a day or two. This was months. Yeah, and, and that's then, not even the worst. The, the, Stalin, under 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 Joseph Stalin, the, the types of torture tactics that were employed, it's really, it's absolutely horrific. The electrocution of sensitive body parts and and just, it's horrible, horrible torture of um, certain prisoners, many prisoners, unfortunately. Yeah. So, and some people are saying, oh, that's not going to happen here. Oh, yeah, it could. Uh, we're definitely on our way to that. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Well, I mean, it seems to be part of the dark side of human nature to want to gain power, you know, and we see all throughout history that there's different, you know, brutality, tactics of brutality, including arresting and torturing people. And, you know, I will that come to that here. I mean, I don't know. But what we're seeing unfold, and it's been unfolding, unfortunately, for several decades, is first, at first the slow motion unfolding of communist tactics, but now it's just in your face if you understand what this wokeism is, is neo-Marxism. Um, we really can't rule it out. We can't rule out that there might be a regime that would come into power here in America that would utilize tactics of brutality. Well, I want to start out uh, really diving into this. President Benson, as I'm sure you're aware, gave a speech at BYU at some time. I don't know when exactly, but he talked about how he led around somebody in the agriculture department in Russia, and he was not proud of it either. But President Benson had a job to do, and you got to do your job or you're fired and all kinds of so he had to, He had a job to do. Uh-huh. As a secretary of agriculture, and President Eisenhower asked him to lead this guy around from Russia. And this person said, you're going to basically, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the direct quote, but he said that you're going to be living in communism. Yeah. And President Benson said, not if I have a say in it. He arrogantly replied, you Americans will not accept communism outright, but if we give it to you in small doses... Yes. We will give it to you. I think he actually said this, the guy from Russia said, your grandkids will be waking up in communism or something. Yeah. We're nearly there. We are um, We are frighteningly cl- close. Yes, we are. Yeah. And I want to get into, you know, the, the fact is, uh, let's get into the churches since we've been talking about Christians in Russia. Yeah. The churches, first of all, do you see the LDS church being infiltrated by the government? Or do you think that there are informants in the LDS Church purposely infiltrating it? Because I do. Maybe not so much government officials, although it could be, but certainly professors at BYU, as I've talked about on this podcast before. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just to backtrack a bit, that's there were three anti-religious tactics that I researched in depth for my thesis, that the three main ways that the Soviet government attempted to destroy Christianity and this is focused in the latter half of the Soviet Union. And one of them was infiltration of the churches with KGB agents so they could control the churches from within. And unfortunately, the literal communist infiltration of America's churches was begun well over a century ago. It was funded by big money, monopolistic capitalists such as Rockefeller Foundation. And by the mid-century, mid-20th century, we had roughly half of our mainline Christian churches in America deeply, deeply infiltrated with communists who had gone into the seminaries and then from the top 
taught other preachers and pastors, changed the doctrines, turned the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is supposed to be one of becoming one with God and having an atonement of sin, turning it and metamorphosizing it into a social justice and kind of like poo-pooing the part where you um, become one with God. But in any case, to where we're at today is there is far more. I mean, today we have now even the evangelical churches in the last decade or so have been highly infiltrated from the top with communism and woke Marxism, woke neo-Marxism. And yeah, there's evidence that there is some infiltration. I did come to the conclusion that out of all the major churches in America, the LDS church has the least, um, there's the least amount of infiltration with communism. But I don't believe that communism would be the only thing infiltrating churches. If one is a Christian and believes that that churches are um, crucial and an important part of our society, um, and if you believe there are dark forces that want to take over society, churches would be a prime target for infiltration in order to um, gain control over the masses and gain control over the messaging. And I, I think there's perhaps other dark elements that also infiltrate. I think 100% every, everyone in any major church in America has to assume that their church is infiltrated to one degree or another, whether with communism or other another dark force. And um, and we have to assume that's the case. Even Jesus warned against it. He, he warned about the wolves in sheep's clothing and that would be coming and also the, the wheat and the tares and how even within his church, there would be um, the tares. So yes, exactly. What does that look like in the LDS church with the infiltration? I don't presume to know, but yeah, you pointed out one little sign with some of the woke wokeism being taught at BYU. Um, and why is wokeism so corrosive? It's a highly, highly corrosive it's a form of Marxism uh, to tear down society so that communism can come into power. Um, and so teaching against the binary genders at BYU, that is an LDS funded organization when the LDS doctrine is very supportive of the family, that's a little bit concerning. Um, but I can't give you, I don't have any insight into like names of people or whatever, just, you know, different signs to look for, which I definitely go through many of those in my book. Well, I will tell you this, and we're going to get into more of your book, but since this is the LDS Life podcast, I have to get this out there. Sure. My dad told me, and I think I mentioned this two podcasts ago, my dad told me that there are people in the church, it's called the Under 30 Committee, there are people on this Under 30 Committee, committee who report to the general authorities, and they pretty much, they're like the NSA of the church, pretty much. Hmm. And they tell the general authorities what's happening. And I'm sure that that's probably where they get some of their ideas for their conference talks and whatnot, rather to contradict or agree with what's being said out there. And I'm, and I'm sure that these people are monitoring podcasts. I don't think I'm being monitored because I don't think I'm big enough, but I'm sure that they're monitoring others. In fact, I know one of them is being monitored, two of them. Mm -hmm. And who's to say that some of these people don't have a hidden agenda? And so they're telling you, you know, maybe let's say Elder Oaks or President Oaks. Oh, well, we got to do it this way. Why? Well, because if you don't, then they're just going to come back and say this, 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 and 
So who's to say that those people, maybe not all of them, but some of them don't have a hidden agenda. Don't you think it's possible? Of course it's possible. Yeah. Completely possible. And I want to get into the fact that the church, let's just stick steer ourselves away from the LDS church and just talk mm -hmm. about churches in general. Yeah. The KGB would actually come in, like you said, and infiltrate the church. In fact, there were people as you said in your book, that were encouraged. Let's say somebody uh, was in the Communist Party here in America. Yes. They were encouraged to go back to their churches. Why? Because they could preach Christian doctrine and weave it into their beliefs or wokeism or whatever you want to call it. For example, giving to the poor. Of course we should give to the poor. Right. We've given to the poor. Mm -hmm. We all should. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. I've been the recipient of somebody giving to the poor before when I was on hard times. Right. But it wasn't done. Oh, here, here's this. No, it was done in this way that, okay, Kevin, we're going to help you out here, but you've got to do some work for us. Okay. Well, you got to clean the church building. Okay. That's the way it should work. Now, I'm not right. saying, you know, I, I don't, I know not everybody out there goes to church, but something like that, you know, that's how it's supposed to work, isn't it? Yeah, I think the church welfare system is is beautiful and yeah. that it, it encourages people to contribute in ways that they can contribute and to receive help that they need. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, um, in fact, uh, one of the things that I had to do, believe it or not, you're going to laugh at this. Uh, I actually had to be a part of a group of people who vacuumed the conference center. Oh. And you say, well, Kevin, how do you do that being blind? Well, first of all, it's not that hard. You just go back and forth, back and forth five or six <laughs> times. And then you kind of know. And then you got sight of people there. I had inspecting my work and it all worked out. And I'd clean the building or whatever while I was getting assistance. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's done in the right way. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about governments just giving, 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 giving until the money's gone and we got to get more tax money or whatever. Right. It's such a fine line. This is it's, it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about because so let's backtrack a little bit. So one yeah. of the ways in which so America's churches began to be infiltrated literally with communist operatives who went into the seminaries and then assumed leadership of these seminaries. And they were funded by, you know, some of our monopolistic capitalists like Rockefeller Foundation here in America. And one of the things they did was change kind of change the doctrines and one of the, the one of the things they changed was um, the belief in the literal, um, literal virgin birth of Jesus and the the atonement of Jesus that Jesus is God and they and they the divinity of Jesus they cast doubt on that these communist operatives and caused that to be spread throughout um, different portions of Christianity. But then the other thing they did it was they did a switcheroo. They said that Jesus was God. No, that G they cast doubt on the divinity of Jesus. Oh, okay. That he was just a good, he was a prophet. He was not um, the son of God, not, you know, and is, okay. what, what, and then another aspect of what they did, these, these operatives is they took the kernel of the true kernel of Christianity. As far as I understand it is for us to realize that we are fallen and that we need help. We need, and Jesus atoned for our sins. We can turn our hearts over to him. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can become one with God and we can be saved. I think that's, kind of the general gist of Christianity um, mm -hmm. all across the board. And what these communist operatives did here in America from within the National Council of Churches and many of the mainline Christian 
sects that everyone would recognize part of this organization, they cast doubt on Jesus and they also replace that kernel of true Christianity with a social justice called the social gospel. And they took a true principle of Christianity, which is doing good to, to those in need, especially, you know, serving our neighbor, helping those who are underprivileged, making that the gospel, making social justice the gospel and the way to be saved. And no matter about the relationship with God and no matter about dealing with sin and forgiveness and repentance and all that, let's cast that part aside. Now we're just going to seek out underprivileged. And now, and then, and then what, what Marxism does with this, first of all, helping underprivileged, absolutely a part of, of what Christ taught, but what Marx, Karl Marx, you know, the author of the communist manifesto, the whole premise of Marxism is you pit, um, oppressed, you, you locate a group of people who've been oppressed and you pit them against their quote unquote oppressor class. You stoke anger and resentment and cause these oppressed people to tear down and destroy elements of society. So then the communist government can come in and supposedly set up a utopia, which they never do. They end up killing mass numbers of people and oppressing everyone. But what, when you get into where social justice can go wrong is if you then um, go in a direction like what we have today with critical race theory, where people of color are the oppressed class by default, de facto oppressed. Then white people, white supremacists and quote unquote whiteness are is the oppressor. And so we have this tearing down, attempted tearing down of whiteness, whatever that means. And that can be made to mean almost anything because our whole country was, much of our country was built by white people. The constitution was written by white people and signed by white people. So that could fall as a casualty to this war against whiteness. You could tear down the whole country in the name of helping the oppressed, helping oppressed people of color. And that is happening. Um, and that's just one aspect of woke neo-Marxism. Um, but you can, and there's churches on board with that today. They've gone the full woke route. And now we even have churches pushing the trans and the queer agenda, which is another aspect of woke neo-Marxism, the gender theory and queer theory operates exactly like critical race theory, except the enemy is the binary genders and heterosexual people. How convenient. Oh, what could be more destabilizing for society than tearing down heterosexuality and the binary genders? That's the destruction of society right there. Yeah, I want to get into civil rights because me being a blind person, I have been the beneficiary of civil rights. And I can tell you some stories if we have time on the podcast. And yeah, no, I don't think we need to have critical sighted theory. That's I've even heard people <laughs> use the word sighted privilege. And I think that is so divisive, people. Let's knock off those terms. Well, ableism uh, is an aspect of woke neo-Marxism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where, it just it just sounds so divisive to me. That's, that's like yeah. you're you're blaming the side of people and saying, "Oh, I you have a privilege, I don't." It's it's so divisive. Yes. And Very so uh, I I want to get into, but I want to talk about the three types of communists that are your book, J. Edgar Hoover. You mentioned this in your book. Yes. yes. The communists. The sympathizers, the dupe, the travelers, I guess that's, and then the dupes, and then your version, the money makers. As I was reading, how does one become a traveler? Because I have been somewhat involved in the Patriot movement. I'm not as involved as probably you. I just do a podcast and let people come on and have a voice. Mm -hmm. But I've been to political rallies. I associate with Ammon Bundy a little bit, certainly his former campaign manager. 
I associate with Shauna Cox over the phone. But how does one become a traveler? Because I've never been approached by anybody in the Patriot movement saying, oh, Kevin, we got this coming up. You ought to be, you ought to join us. And we have, I pretty much have to seek it out. So how does one become a traveler? Let's say I go to a socialist rally. How do I get to be a traveler? Not that I'm going to, but I just want people to know because I wonder right. that myself. Yeah, this is a really important thing. So um, see it like a pyramid. Um, yeah, J. Edgar Hoover said there were three categories of communists. Again, the they call it the avowed communists is the smallest group and the most visible. They're the ones that are like like AOC. Mm -hmm. I, maybe maybe AOC wouldn't consider. She's promoting absolute communist agendas. Bernie Sanders, um, he's a whatever democratic socialist. A socialist, yes. Um, these are people who outrightly promote communism, communist ideals and communist views. And then um, the next level down from that is the fellow travelers. Um, these are people who would, these are people who let's say go for socialism and they go for social justice and people perhaps who have marched with Black Lives Matter, they're well-intended people, but they're like, yeah, we need to help the oppressed and the oppressed do need to be, we do need to help the oppressed. And so they're they're kind of sucked into that and but they're more active than the next level down. Bigger group are the dupes. And these are the people who just like, yeah, social justice sounds good. They might not be as active, but they've bought into that, um, that whole theory. And I actually added a couple new categories. I added, there's another category I added that before, after I finished my book and it's level two, I have a level one dupe and a level two dupe. And I'll, I'll share what that is in a second, but yeah, then at the go very, ahead. Yeah, very tip on. of the pyramid is the money bags or puppet masters. These are people who are not communists. These are the people who are actually funding the whole thing. And in America, we have the, again, the Rockefellers, Carnegie's, these are monopolistic capitalists that are simply using communism as a way for control and to maintain their position at the top and their family's positions at the top in perpetuity. Um, so again, money bags at the top, funding avowed communists, the avowed communists, most people don't agree with them, but the people who agree with, yeah, I think they, I agree with this part of what they say. I don't want communism in America, but I do like what they're saying about this. We do like, for instance, oh yes, we need the government needs to pay for matern maternity leave for however many months for all women. Sounds great, but there's some issues with that. Then you the fellow travelers, not as hardcore, but they're they're going they're going along with that. Some level one dupes are would be the people who would maybe like have the Black Lives Matter black square for their social media profile back during the George Floyd things. These are well-intended people and they've been duped into the agenda because it appears has the appearance of being good and helpful. The level two dupes are the people who might not buy into the agenda, but they want to virtue signal and they want to come across as, they don't want anyone to judge them as being racist or anti-gay, homophobe or whatever. So they kind of just go along with that agenda because they don't want to look bad. They want to be nice. Mm -hmm. And so, I would say that most people in the LDS church that I have ran to fall in that category. Very well intended. And some of it I realize is survival. Yeah. They want to keep their job. I don't want to judge any one individual, but what you're talking about right now is a lot of what I see happening. Just average everyday people trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. 
So, I mean, but all of every single category, every single one of those five are aiding and abetting the communist agenda in America. That's the thing. So um, what would you say? But well, let's get back to this other question, though, because mm -hmm. you, you mentioned in your book that some of the travelers even become violent and start rioting. How does one get up to that point? How does one even become a traveler? How does one get into well, that position? Let's look at Antifa as an example. Um, Antifa, they call themselves anarcho-communists, which is kind of doesn't make sense because anarchism and anarchy and communism are kind of polar opposites. So yes, but these are people who are disaffected. These are people who feel disaffected from mainstream society. They've been very, they've been radicalized. How did that radicalization happen? In some cases, part of it may have occurred in their schooling experience. Um, it may have occurred with their exposure to certain films and different media things. Um, a lot of a lot of the Antifa people seem to be on the queer somewhere on the queer spectrum. I'm not anti-gay. I don't hate gay people, but that queer theory and gender theory, neo-Marxist woke stuff being pushed on our kids, um, encouraging kids to go trans and all this whole spectrum of sexuality and gender that is part of Marxism and that it is done for the explicit purpose of alienating children from their parents, their families, their society, their religion. And what they, they stoke, they meaning the puppet masters stoke the anger of these disaffected people to make them, to cause them to want to become violent. And they think they're doing good. They're tearing down the systems of oppression so, but how did they get recruited to by? Because I I remember reading in 2020, mm -hmm. uh, Antipa was using social media to recruit people. How do they even get to the point where they get recruited? How does one go there? Well, I I think some of it could start in high school, and I think for sure college. Um, I I don't know for sure. I, I will say this: my closest encounter with Antifa thankfully was only on social media, but it still kind of shocked me. Um, this was right after the George Floyd, um, George Floyd was um, died and there was going to be someone posted in a local, I live in, in Washington County, Utah, um, close to St. George. And someone posted in a local Facebook group, like it was for St. George residents. Oh, there's going to be a Black Lives Matter rally in St. George this weekend. We need to have a counter rally of patriots. And so and I was just looking at that thread. I didn't attend. I didn't want to put myself in that situation. Um, but what I saw is I saw this person on Facebook say, oh, this, this Black Lives Matter rally in St. George isn't going to be much, but just you wait because we have some pretty big plans. I'm an Antifa. And then he bragged about being an Antifa officer. I looked at this individual's Facebook profile. He's at, we actually had a common Facebook friend in, in a a friend in common, a woman who, when I lived in downtown Salt Lake, was one of my neighbors mm -hmm. and um, super leftist woman. But, you know, she she had chickens and I got she gave me some of her eggs anyways. But this guy bragged. He's like, we have we have cells in every town in the country. And when we are waiting for the call to, to wreak havoc on in every town in America. Wow. He bragged about it. He and he said he was an officer. That means there's a structure and an organ, like a military type structure. And um, 
that that really opened my eyes. Um, how was he recruited? I can't say, but there's there there is evidence of teachers in different schools in America that are radicalizing the kids, perhaps drawing some of them in. Um, I'm sure organizations on campuses all across America are finding such individuals, um, and might maybe they're starting with the oppressed classes of people, maybe through organizations like that are supposedly to help gay kids to feel like they fit in, maybe organizations to help black kids feel like they fit in. Um, maybe that's one of the main places that they would recruit. Um, and then what's really also very disturbing is now all through America, we have these social and emotional learning programs embedded in the public education curricula. And you, it's in social justice is embedded in the curricula. And it's, it's not just that a promotion of social justice. It's actually, um, it's something that James Lindsay, who opened my eyes quite a lot. He's an academic who has been exposing communism for the last few years quite effectively. He calls it cult grooming in the classroom because what it does is it causes the children of quote unquote privilege, those who are white, male, heterosexual, Christian, maybe upper middle class, it causes them to feel guilty for their privilege. And the kids that are in the underprivileged groups are given a lot of validation and the privileged kids are kind of like, uh, you got some problems there. And then what they have to do, these privileged kids, in order to atone for their sin of privilege, they either have to become an ally or they have to become part of the oppressed class. They can become queer. A good One of my very best friends has seven kids and she and her husband unfortunately got divorced a couple of years ago and her kids are several of them teenagers, kind of in a vulnerable situation now, two of them. And she had homeschooled them most of the time through. They, they needed to be put in school for various reasons and they're living with her husband here in utah and oh now two of her kids are, are on the queer spectrum one of them says he's bi the other one is like pansexual whatever that means because now if you accept an identity that's part of the oppressed class then you're no longer the evil oppressor wow okay so if you're not accepted by these people then you're what so what they're the way that the curriculum in the schools is now is they are brainwashing our kids either it's it's cool to become mm -hmm. part of the oppressed class it's actually mm -hmm. it's it's you have get extra bonus points if you're a person of color you get extra bonus points if you're somewhere if you're queer or trans extra bonus points for you you're extra cool but the kids that are not the heterosexual kids christian white you, they're the problem and oh. so and they're pointed out as you're the oppressors, you're the problem, not in those words. It's done more crafty in a more crafty manner. And those kids of privilege, in order to, to not be the evil oppressors, they either have to become anti-racist. They need to be out on the streets with BLM or they, they can become somewhere on the queer spectrum and they're no longer the bad oppressor class. So if somebody were to try to recruit me, as mm -hmm. one of the travelers, and I was not, well, I guess I could be a target because I'm blind, and naturally, mm -hmm. uh, blind people have been oppressed historically in society. Yes. We're going to get into that. Yes. And they could say, oh, you're the oppressor. Why don't you come join us? And what if I say, okay, I agree with this, 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 but I don't agree with this, this, this. Would they mm -hmm. probably just have me give a speech on something that I would agree on or uh, not I mean, take me at all? There's a constant, 
okay, just look at Marxist operatives the same way you look at Christian missionaries. It's a similar tactic of, of your, no one changes their mind on big things overnight. It's a gradual, people change their mind gradually. Maybe there one day there's like an aha moment. Yeah. But in terms of, let's say, Christian missionaries, you know that you work with people for, many people get worked with with missionaries for a number of years. Yeah. Or, or they have experiences for a number of years that prepare them to accept um, the message of Christianity. Um, it's the same with Marxist operatives. They're working behind the scenes tirelessly. And I have definitely seen, I know some of the people I've interacted with, they've not been pleasant interactions on social media in, in terms of Oh, I, yeah, I, I have theory. stories. Go ahead. Yeah, the queer, pushing the queer and gender theories here in St. George very heavily, like wanting kids to go to drag shows and completely ripping people to shreds who are opposed to that. These people are working. They have tactics. Now, by now, the tactics of how to, to persuade people and shut people up that you don't want getting their message out, they have fine-tuned these tactics there. And I've been in mark I've been studying marketing for, for over a decade now. And I've run several businesses and I I'm not the world's expert on marketing, but I understand marketing fairly well. And they understand it too. And they understand brainwashing. And they're behind the scenes gaining allies in the schools, universities, and wherever else. And they and they do whatever they can for their people who oppose that agenda to to rip them to shreds to try to get them to shut up. And then make it look like everyone thinks that kids need to go to drag shows and let's bring the drag queens into the schools, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is, again, part of the neo-Marxist woke agenda to push that. Well, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, oh, my gosh, that I have unpleasant interactions with people I knew mm -hmm. on social media. Shut the F up. Mm. I'm thinking, OK. First of all, it's okay that we disagree, but to have that rhetoric, mm -hmm. that is childish. That sounds yeah. like something I would hear in high school. Yeah. And this person was about my age. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I th I can't remember what I responded back. Then I was called a chauvinist. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, I'm not saying these people were in touch with Antipa. I have no idea. Right. I would hope not. These I, The reason I would say I don't think they are is because they were friends with someone I knew in college. But mm -hmm. the mentality is there, isn't it? Yeah. And it's being it's it, yeah. And again, a slow process of radicalizing. And um, as far as how would you you be, you you know, you probably you're a, a critical thinker. You would you would probably not be an ideal recruit. Um, and you don't seem to have a huge chip on your shoulder from being blind. You seem to have a pretty balanced um, re relationship to that. But someone who maybe has a big chip on their shoulder about their color of their skin and being having people be racist towards them or someone with a big chip on their shoulder because they were gay when they were a teenager and their family rejected them. Those are mm -hmm. more prime targets. And I also have to say post-religious people, people who have left their faith, and it seems especially former Mormons are really ripe pickings. And I will say radical feminism absolutely is a part of this as well, um, where that ha that has been taken over by Marxism for many decades. Um, so. Well, I want to get back to civil rights, because this is an issue that I have a passion about. Yeah. 
because I will admit, uh, being a blind person, I've been the benefit, I've been the beneficiary to civil rights. One of the reasons I became a Democrat, I didn't tell you this, mm-hmm. I went from being a conservative to a liberal back to a conservative. Now, mm-hmm. I still have some liberal leanings here and there, but mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have this conversation anyway, because I think it's important. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm definitely not a diehard leftist. So. Right. Having said that, even back when I was a Democrat, I had Democrat friends tell me I was pretty conservative for being a Democrat. I'll tell you a quick story. Mm-hmm. I have a friend in Buffalo, New York, and when I would go back to Buffalo, they would say that I was extremely conservative. But when I'd come back out here to Utah, everybody thought I was a liberal. It was an interesting yeah. paradigm. Yeah. And I thought, geez, what does that say about me? I thought I was supposed to be the liberal here. But yet I've got people in Buffalo calling me a conservative. I don't even consider myself that. It was very strange. Mm. But anyway, the point is, uh, where was I going? I, I, I do have a passion about, yeah, okay. So anyway, um, yeah. I, I, civil rights. Yeah, civil rights. Um, I guess the point is I, I still have some liberal leanings, but not much. But anyway, point mm. is. One of the reasons I became a Democrat, that's where I was going, is because I knew in studying civil rights uh, in high school and being with the National Federation of Blind that Democrats were historically very cooperative with the blind community. Now that's changed. Hmm. But historically, the Democrats were all over our causes. And I have to admit, Julie, they really made us gave us a lot of freedom in the blind community in terms of financial and so i you're gonna laugh the first time i went to washington dc to go lobby in front of our congressmen and senators uh, i was one of the delegates back in 2003 to go lobby Mm -hmm. i actually had an email signature this is how bitter i was towards conservatism although i was certainly not a radical antifa member i did not condone violence at all Mm-hmm. Never. And I still had neighbors, friends that were ultra conservative, but this is how bitter I was towards the philosophy. Is I actually had my email signature uh, back in uh, early 2003, up until I returned back from Washington and said, let's go to Washington, D.C. to send a message to those darn Republicans. <laughs> And I, oh, I got a little heat from that too, but <laughs> just to show you how embraceive I was towards liberalism back then. Well, and, and I, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I have friends all over the political spectrum. And the truth is we need, society needs, what I believe they've done in our society is they've taken, they've split humanity in two, the people that are traditionally more geared towards um, a good order of things and good rules and a good system that works. And then the people that are more geared towards the heart of like help, helping others and serving others. But we need both types of people. Yeah. And, and to separate us, it's a false divide because we're all have both. I agree with you that things needed to be done to help um, people who are blind and with different disabilities. And I mentioned that to you this earlier today, when I lived in Russia in the late nineties, if someone had a disability, they were pretty much screwed. There was nothing they could do in society. There was nothing, there were no, no nothing. You couldn't, you know, there were no um, systems in place to, to service those people. 
and that it was terrible for them. So this is where we get to have a balanced perspective. And I appreciate um, many of the good intentions and some of the great things that people on the left have done. Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. So let's go over some of the things that I experienced just to, because I want to know from you, where to draw the line. Is this some, this is a legitimate question I asked when you, when I read your book mm -hmm. and I'm sensitive to it because being blind and all, but I've had some incidences, for example, uh, the probably the viv most vivid incident that I had was back when I was 10 years old. This was months, just a few weeks, I think just a uh, little bit under a month before the ADA passed. And I didn't know that at the time, but looking at the history, I was in Orlando, Florida with my siblings. And over the PA, it said nobody with disabilities can ride this ride, can ride these rides. Well, I'm the kind of person, if I was there alone, I would have done it anyway, just to see if they would have done anything. <laughs> but because I was with family, and you have to know my family, they are sticklers to rules like no other. COVID yeah. taught me that. Yeah. And so my sister was saying, oh, you can't, Kevin can't go on these rides because it just said over the PA, no one with a disability. My youngest sister was disputing it, said, oh, I think it's just for mentally disabled. There's the mentally disabled people and it was just going back and forth. And so it was decided that I couldn't ride the rides. I personally would have liked to turn back the time, given my age, being at the age of 43, maybe in my early 20s, and just went to test the rule to see if they would actually follow it. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. So let's just assume, though, that I did go, and I just ended up being in the wave pool with uh, my sisters, and they would each take turns uh, watching me while mm -hmm. they would go on the rides. And I felt bad. I felt bad my sisters that they had to pay attention to me and I felt bad that I couldn't go on these rides or supposedly and so my dad showed up to pick us up and we all told him what happened my dad threw a fit rightfully so and he got his money back what do we do in situations like this because now if they if they did this today they would be crucified the water park in Orlando mm. uh, so what do we do to because there needs to be civil rights. Where do we draw this line? Also, where do we draw the line with the ADA? You know, now you build a hotel and it's been this way for decades. You have to have uh, wheelchair ramps. You have to have mm -hmm. elevators. You and have to brain. have, and uh, I'm just thinking that's not a bad idea. Where do you draw this line? Because I, I think this is a conversation we ought to have. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I haven't studied that particular issue in depth. But again, I believe we need people, different people have different passions. One of my best friends has a passion for helping the homeless and she's mm -hmm. over in Salt Lake. There's plenty of people who, homeless people who need help. And her, she has a passion for helping the homeless and she's trying to get a grant to build a, a mobile shower unit for the homeless people. She's actually taken a homeless woman who gave birth, like just into her home right now. And oh, wow. I appreciate my friend and all she does. And I was having this conversation with her. And I'm like, well, but you're, you're helping. You're not then turning and using bitterness and anger to tear society down. You're just out there helping people who need it. That's great. And that's is very needed. And it probably, you know, it's not, that's not going to end anytime soon where there's a great need of different, oh, no. different needs. So we need those people who have those deep inclinations to, to help and serve different populations of underprivileged people. But then 
if if what if the root of it is resentment, if the the root of what we're doing is a, an anger and a resentment, that is a red flag, um, and that anger and resentment is is harnessed by Marxism. That's what it does: is it stokes anger and resentment, and it harnesses it and it directs it towards the quote unquote oppressor class. Um, that's that's where you know that you're in 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 trouble. But if you're just helping people and you're trying to raise money to help people and you're maybe speaking out on different causes of something you feel passionate about, well, there's a lot of that that's very much needed. So, Yeah, the problem is, is it's gotten so political that if you disagree with maybe a political group that you're in, and right. I'll get into that in a few minutes, mm-hmm. they're going to ostracize you and say, oh, your friend hates, you know, whatever your friend's name is. She hates homeless people. She didn't go along with our cause or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so... What yeah. do you do about that? Well, we, we have to come from a place where we need to forgive. We, we need to get rid of anger and resentment and not and, and come from a place of good intentions and a clean heart. And and then we can, you know, work with people who with whom we may disagree and, and try to come to better solutions for society. But, um, you know, if you, if you and your dad, after you were shut out of some of those, some of those um, water slides, if you guys came back to do some, you know, just destruction at the water park after hours, you know, that no, would say that not even. No, in fact, uh, I'll tell you what we did. We went back to the <laughs> hotel. We got ready to go to the Nike outlet and he bought me some shoes. That's exactly that's, what we did. <laughs> that's nice. And, you know, and then maybe, you know, you would speak out about it. Maybe you would call and try to make things better for the, the people the next time around. And that's a good way to make change. But but Marxism harnesses the darker elements of humanity, the anger and the resentment. And again, it stokes the anger. It wants the people angry. Okay, so here's another scenario that we're dealing with. And I, I hate to... Well, I, I hate to get off track here, but now that I've got you on the podcast, we may have to do a part two because I've got a lot of questions and I That's know you, your time is limited. So mm-hmm. one of the issues that we're dealing with in the blind community mm-hmm. is accessibility. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be an ongoing issue. This is never going to end. Technology's changing rapidly. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I used to be of the opinion, okay, let's just give an example uh the cell phone industry the cell phone industry you know uh, when they started having menus back in the late 90s early 2000s -hmm. it would irritate me to no end because they were not user-friendly to blind people and i would try to sound the bell we've got to do something and i felt like nothing was being done it was all lip service Mm -hmm. Finally, and we can talk about this, and we maybe we can re- re- review this back, you know, connect this back to your book, so we're not getting too far off topic. Mm-hmm. Finally, some group decided if the manufacturers are, they threatened a lawsuit against all the cell phone manufacturers and providers, Verizon Wireless being one of the providers. I don't think AT&T and T-Mobile were a t- target. I'm guessing, but I don't think they were because they actually did have cell phones that were accessible. The problem was you had to pay about five, 600 bucks for those. And most blind people don't have that kind of money, sadly so. Mm-hmm. But Verizon was a target because they didn't have anything accessible to blind people except for just a few voice commands here and there. So one of the groups decided 
the American Foundation of the Blind to get together, and they actually sent a letter to Verizon Wireless saying, if you don't get your act together, I'm paraphrasing, basically, if you don't get your act together, we will file a lawsuit. So what did Verizon do? And they were very smart in doing this. They sent a mass email out to all the cell phone manufacturers they dealt with. And LG, this is way back in 2003, 2004, way back before the iPhones. So LG stepped up to the plate. Now, was their cell phone completely accessible? No, but it was on the right track. And it got more accessible as time went on. And LG actually did a smart thing. They did not market it to blind people. They marketed it to drivers. And it just so happened that us blind people somehow found out about it. And I even got an LG phone. And gosh, was I excited. What do you think of that scenario? And how should that have been handled? I mean, again, I'm not well-versed in all of these things. Uh, I haven't studied them out. But I mean, I think that sounds fine to me. Okay. I don't see a problem with that. I mean, yeah, there's different groups with different special um, interests and needs that, that have feel strongly about things that, that um, want to um, get businesses to, to make products that serve their needs. And again, where I draw the line is if anger and resentment is at the heart of something and, 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 and violence is, um, where things are headed. That's where it gets out of control. But you know, yeah. activism, activism itself, I don't have a problem with. Okay. One more thing, and then I want to get back to your book. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times what happens in the blind community is we'll try and work with a company, let's say Whirlpool or whoever, to get their things accessible, like the washers mm -hmm. and dryers. Right. And, you know, they'll say, oh, we'll do it. Well, they'll give lip service. But Unfortunately, and I think this is where the angerness comes in, and I think this is where maybe activism starts getting carried too far, is they do nothing about it. And so there's a lawsuit. Oh, oh, we gotta get we gotta get it together. Somebody's gonna sue us. I didn't think they were that serious. It shouldn't have to go that far. I think this is why, and I'm not excusing violence, but I think this is why people have a chip on their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lawsuits are sometimes is what's needed. Yeah, sometimes that is what's needed to to create change. And um, you know, I'm sure. Hello, I mean, yeah. Think of think of the people with different disabilities a hundred years ago and how much they went through. And thank goodness you and many other people today are have are benefiting from the the work of so many other people to make the world a livable place. You know where you can function. I yeah. don't have a problem with that. Um, I already told you what my line is. Yeah. 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 So let's get back to this, to your book though. Sorry to get off on a tangent, but okay. I, um, one of the reasons, and I feel like the, and I don't, I haven't studied it. I don't even know where to look, but I think the national federation of the blind has been infiltrated. They are passing resolutions that I do not agree with. Mm -hmm. You know, like you don't have to show your ID when you vote. Really? Then let's not show our ID before we board a plane. Right. Let's not show our ID before this. In fact, when I go to the bank to get out money and they ask for my ID, I jokingly say, how dare you? You're a racist. Why do you ask? <laughs> I just kind of give them a bad time in a funny way. Right. Just to try to educate people what's going on. Some get the joke, some don't. Some take me seriously and I have to tell them it's a joke. Right. <laughs> some get it. <laughs> 
But well, they've gone so woke. Uh, I have to say, I'm still a member in name in case something happens to me. I can use them to defend me. Right. But well, ableism and fat studies are two um, offshoots of woke neo-Marxism, where they're targeting the oppressed classes, people with disabilities, and then people who are are over like obese. And so yeah. they're the oppressed class. And again, there's that might be there might be some legitimacy to that. But then the oppressor class would be people who are not people who are able-bodied, or people who are thin are the oppressors mm -hmm. now. And then they have to or thinness has to be torn down as an ideal in society. Um, no. If you're starting to come at people, like you mentioned in our conversation, people with sight as if they're somehow oppressing blind people just by their existence, just by the very fact that they have sight, the, that's not very healthy. And no, that is, it's not. It's Marxist. Um, you know, uh, so let's talk about Christianity yes. in your book. We're actually doing pretty good on time. Okay, Christianity. You mentioned in your book and about the Simpsons, uh, Homer Simpson has a neighbor that's a nice guy, but I can't remember exactly what you but, said about him. Yeah, I talk about the different archetypes of, well, if you look at any group and the treatment of different groups in entertainment, there's only one group that it's kosher to completely attack in the line, and that's Christians. Um, and there's three different archetypes of how Christians are treated. One is treating Christians as like lovable, but like really naive and like nerdy and geeky, like Ned, Homer Simpson's neighbor. Then there is the um, controlling parent who um, like locks the kid in the closet so they don't, you know, go to the dance, like the movie Footloose. Yeah. Like all the leaders in that and like the, you know, the school, the principal and the mayor or whatever that didn't want the kids to dance or listen to rock and roll, the over controlling. Yeah. And then the third one is the um, the murderous Christian clergyman who, you know, is is like murdering and pillaging and raping or whatever, while he meanwhile is wearing his rosary around his neck or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. those archetypes are seen very commonly and you really anymore? I, it's been a long time since I'm since I've seen a positive treatment of any Christians in um, entertainment in America, unless it's a something made for Christians. Now I, I saw the movie Footloose. Um, you know, people say, "Oh, you're blind. How do you see?" Well, I just use them interchangeably. But mm -hmm. I saw it with my dad and stepmom, and I'll admit it was a good movie. But what you're saying, though, I don't want to debate whether the movies are bad or good. But what you're saying is these are consistent, and we ought to watch out. Correct. Yeah. And it's just gotten to the point now. I mean, can you even think of anything made in the last five years that that treats Christians with any level of fairness where there can be like the Christian clergyman is almost always evil in the last several years? Well, we're oppressive in some way. What about uh, and I, um, I want to get back to this, but let's just talk about the movie Home Alone. Now, I like Home Alone. I had some good laughs. I've seen one and two. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite parts of the Home Alone 2 is when I get married, I'm living alone. I'm living alone. And jumps up and down. I think, yeah, that's funny. You can't get married and live alone. <laughs> mm -hmm. But let's be honest, though. There is an undertone of trying to undermine the parents, isn't there? As funny as the movie is. Yeah, and that's only only ramped up and more recently. Yeah. Of, um, so I mean, much of the entertainment is a is a denigrating to parents. And sometimes it's it's kind of lighthearted, like Home Alone, and then sometimes yeah. it's it's more um, 
sinister. Oh, absolutely. But back to the uh, the Christian uh, betrayal, and then I want to get to Warren Jepson. I know you got to leave. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. What about, and I, I'll admit, I am very pop culture illiterate. I rarely watch TV. It's not mm-hmm. my thing. I'm a radio guy, a podcast guy. So help me out here. Would mm-hmm. you say that shows like Desperate Housewives, uh, or, uh, no, what's the other, Sister Wives? Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one that's dealing with polygamy. I can't remember what it is. The Mormon Housewife. Oh. Well, what, whatever, what were you thinking of? Oh, Big Love. I don't. I... Big Love. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you say that? They are hyperventilating the negative. What's going on in polygamy, or not, or what? What is your take? Because you've obviously studied a little bit about polygamy and the colonists and whatnot. Um, I, I've never seen an episode of Big Love, so I don't know. Um, okay. And I have I have watched some episodes of Sister Wives, and I don't I I don't I think they were showing them in a positive light mostly. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean. The the news articles that you see online about about the you know what's happened with their family and the, the troubles they've had and um are me a little bit disrespectful at times but okay. the show itself um was done respectfully okay because I have a friend that says oh I've seen Sister Wives I don't want to live that lifestyle and whatever she's not a member so mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Let's talk about Waco and Warren Jepps. And if you have time, stay with me after the podcast. I know you're busy and I want to thank you for coming on. But um, Warren Jepps is a bad dude, to put it lightly. I think he's bad news, yes. Yes, and I agree with what uh, my last guest, David Sanders, had said. There's going to be a special place in hell for Warren Jepps. And, well, I'll just let... I'll just let God take care of that. But I believe that uh, he may not like what's coming. That said, I read about how these people in the compound were treated. They were taken away from their mothers. One mm-hmm. was taken away, given medicine. It made him drowsy. It was, was a little baby, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. in the book and even at 4 30 p.m i think the mother got him at 10 30 4 30 he was still asleep and drugged. uh yeah mm-hmm. and what they were taking care of the foster homes you know what it reminded me of mm-hmm. it reminded me of an incident that happened in 1982 and i vaguely remember this as a kid i had to go to therapy because my mom was concerned that i wasn't talking at a uh, you know most two and a half year olds talk pretty fluently Mm-hmm. Or they start to, and I can only say a few words. Of course, isn't that ironic? Now I talk fluently. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, my mom was probably rightfully worried, you know, because uh, there's other disabilities that comes with my genetics disease that I thank goodness don't have. And so she mm-hmm. had a right to be worried and good reasons. So she sent me to the blind school. Well, the blind school was about seven hours away from my hometown in Oregon. Mm. And my mom could be with me. Well, she could be on the property, but not with me. And I understand they were trying to figure out what was wrong and they didn't want interference. I understand that. But as I read this, it reminded me of being away from my mom. Now she, you know, she could take me on the weekend, do whatever. But Hmm. what if we come to the point and maybe we're already here 
where it isn't just polygamists getting a bad rap and you know the social the foster care system dcs dcfs cps whatever you want to call them mm-hmm. what if it happens to the individual now as far as we know the reason we're talking about this is because a lot of these people did not get due process in fact let's go over uh, what happened in waco and uh, with warren jepps if you don't mind yeah, so just backtracking just a little bit, yeah. in my master's thesis, I researched the um, the tactics of the Soviet state to um, try to stamp out Christianity, and that involved raids on their meetings, arrests, imprisonment, some cases torture, removal of children from their parents because their children, their parents were quote unquote abusing them by teaching them religion, um, or you know making them have have a Sabbath day that was somehow abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, just oppressing these, especially the, the fringe Christian groups that were not, um, the underground Baptists, Pentecostal, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses in particular. And, um, so there was this set of tactics used to, to persecute and oppress them. And in 2008, when I saw what, that, what happened with the FLDS, um, and I didn't particularly follow the FLDS before that, but I saw what happened with the kids being taken without due process because they were being quote unquote abused. But where was the evidence of that, that any individual child was under threat of abuse? That is where it it really um, caused a red flag to go up. And that's what caused me to research and end up writing my book. Um, and then I did in the course of this study, what happened with the Branch Davidians, um, which is one of the most horrific incidents in American history, in my opinion, absolutely horrific happened right in front of us right on live television i was a senior in high school didn't you know question anything that was shown to me in a nutshell we have a small non-violent christian community with some non-traditional beliefs and warren uh, not warren jeff sorry david koresh perhaps going a little too far in in that um, none of the the members that lived there were allowed to um, that he, he basically was, was, um, taking p- other people's wives and yes. calling them wives. they were agreeing to it, but he was making it part of their religion. And, um, and he was fathering all these children and teaching people stuff from the Bible. As far as the arms that they were, that they were amassing, that was how they made their money as a community was at doing gun shows. They were not they were apocalyptic. They did. They did think there was going to be a big apocalyptic stand down, but in no way, shape or form was there any evidence that they were going to be the ones inst- instigating this. All the local law enforcement saw them as peace loving, uh, peace abiding citizens. Uh, David Koresh was not abusing people in, in any way in terms of they were not beating the children as there was an allegation and that they sent the um, the they sent um, child protective services in to observe and they didn't find any evidence of that. There was, um, I think a 13 year old girl who David Koresh was perhaps grooming to be his wife at some point. And she came out and yeah, she had every right to come out about that. And David Koresh could have been questioned. Perhaps he could have been charged with um, uh, statutory rape because he was having some of his wives were as young as 14 years old, but he was married to them with parental permission. And so they were choosing that, but that's still questionable. I understand. Um, but what, what we did is we sent in tanks, militarized helicopters, and they can't, they had false allegations of drug, um, drug trafficking uh, and drug 
um, production with the, with the Branch Davidians. It was completely faked. because That's the only way they could get the military equipment in there um, because of the Posse Comitatus Act doesn't allow our military to come against citizens unless it's like a severe drug thing. There was no drug thing. There wasn't even a threat of any kind of armed conflict until the government showed up and then started shooting at David Koresh. They shot him and then the people pulled the guns out and started shooting back. Um, was that the right thing to do? Um, not necessarily, but I can't say I blame them. They, they were being shot at from above with helicopters. A woman got shot in the chest while she was nursing her baby a woman, just sitting in her room. An elderly person was, was shot and killed just sitting there in his room. Um, some of the government agents were killed by the Branch Davidians, I think four, and then six Branch Davidians were killed at that initial conflict. And there was that siege for how many days was that? It was a few months, um, ending with the horrific fire and the death of 76 men, women, and children. Um, I believe the evidence is very clear that, uh, if the government did not, if the, if the, um, ATF agents were not the ones who caused the fire by using pyrotechnic devices to put that CS gas into the building, which is highly flammable. If they weren't the ones at fault for that fire, they were at least at fault for pushing the Branch Davidians to the edge of insanity. The yeah, they should sanity. have had uh, due process. Um, one of yeah. The, yeah one of the to me, to me, there's so much more to this. I have a whole chapter on this in my book, and then you can yeah. look at this for people who want to delve even deeper. Um, yeah. There is evidence that the one the branch the branch Davidians who were attempting to escape during the fire. There's evidence that they were they were gunned down. They didn't want there to be survivors. I believe yeah. that's very likely the case. Bill Clinton, the day after this was right after Bill Clinton was inaugurated, that this all went down. Bill Clinton comes out at the day after 76 men, women, and children are burned to death in this building. By the way, they wouldn't let there to be any fire trucks go near it. They just watched it burn. Bill Clinton comes out and says, "Well." We're very sorry what happened, but this is just a lesson to anyone who might join a, a cult, a religious cult with, with with extreme views. This is a warning to you that you shouldn't do that. Well, here's and, what concern. Oh, go ahead. I think that was the whole point. I think this yeah. was a big warning that we're if you don't fall in line with the government as a church, you better watch your back. Okay, so I want to get back to my story with my mother because mm -hmm. I didn't really make a connection. Mm -hmm. What if my mom, let's let's just say that we're in 2023. I'm a two-year-old kid. I'm a late bloomer. I don't talk as fluently as I should at two and a half or whatever. And my mom is rightfully concerned about me, takes me to therapy. What if my mom doesn't do the traditional things that most families do? What if I have an infection and the infection's getting better, but I'm not taking medicine? Uh, my mom has me on herbal remedies or whatever homeopathic remedies are out there. Yeah. And yeah. so the, they find this out. Social workers find this out or whatever, because I'm in a blind school in Oregon. They could take me away from my mom in an instant. I'm not saying they would in 2023, but at the, the chances... I would say our 50% chance now, wouldn't you? Well, well, Kevin, there are there are people who have their babies taken from them in the hospital right after birth because the parents don't want to vaccinate them. That's happened many times. That is not good. And there's an incident in Canada. I can't remember what it was. It was a toddler who died of um, some sort of bacterial or viral infection. <clears throat> and the parents actually did take the child to the hospital 
but it was too late. But the parents had been consulting with nurses and different things and that they were like, they were told that it wasn't that severe. They were treating the child at home and they were charged and imprisoned, these parents, for murder. What, because they didn't vaccinate the kid? Because because their child died of, a, of an illness. Oh, okay. They were charged with murder, even though the, all the evidence was that they were taking it very seriously, and they did actually put the child in the hospital. Well, the look end. no further than baby Cyrus. I'm sure you're familiar with that case. Refresh my memory. Okay, baby Cyrus, the case that I have been following quite a bit, it started when, this is up in Boise, Idaho, Ammon Bundy is friends with Diego Rodriguez. Diego Rodriguez has a grandson named Cyrus. Uh, I can say the name. It's public knowledge. Baby mm -hmm. Cyrus. And I guess Am, uh, Marissa and her husband, I can't remember the name. You can go Google it or use your favorite search engine. And they were out and... Marissa was sick one morning and couldn't make it to the doctor. And so she scheduled an appointment for another time. Well, meanwhile, that night, Marissa, baby Cyrus, and the husband go to someone's house for dinner. And on their way home, an ambulance shows up and says, uh, hey, you got to go to the hospital. And they put, I think they, yeah, they took baby Cyrus away from Marissa Marissa was not going anywhere, and I think if I remember the story correctly, Marissa, I think, showed up at the hospital later or something. Something happened, and CPS got involved at the hospital, charging, uh, you know, they wanted to say, oh, Marissa neglected this, this baby because the baby was sick. Well, the baby was having a hard time keeping food down, and they were went to some holistic doctor, and he was giving, he, they were trying things out. And just because Marissa was sick, couldn't make it to the doctor, they got CPS involved. CPS came, and eventually an Ammon Bundy had a protest on the sidewalk. They didn't go in. Like the media said, that they were in disruptive with St. Luke's Hospital. No, they just were on the sidewalk protesting. And a bunch of people called St. Luke's that day and wanted the baby released. Well, eventually he did get released. Eventually he did get back with the parents. All because Marissa was sick and she knew that. And they had another appointment. They scheduled another appointment. But now some would say, well, Kevin, why didn't Marissa just have someone else take the baby in for Marissa? I don't know. I wasn't there. That's might have been what I would have done as a parent, but I wasn't there. I don't know. But well, there's there's a lot of cases like this, and and it's frightening, and we absolutely can't stand for it. So I'm glad that that Ammon Bundy was standing up for this family. Well, let's let's get this closer to home, though. Let's mm -hmm. go back to the Waco situation specifically. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, Julie, but there's a community called Riverbed Ranch in Utah. Have you heard of it? Nope. Riverbed Ranch is a self-reliance community. Okay. And at Riverbed Ranch, people build their own houses. They're off the grid. They can get internet if they want. They don't have to. They've got their own solar system. It's a really, it kind of reminds me, I'm sure you've read the book Atlas Shrugged. kind of reminds me of the civilized, the, the city that they had in Colorado uh, in okay. the middle of the book there. Okay. And 
one of the hangups, I, I mean, I don't have the means to join it right now, but I just keep thinking, what if the government comes after that community? And I've talked to people and they say, oh, Kevin, we have drilling permits. We follow all the city guidelines. Okay. But has it ever occurred to you that a legislature or someone who's going to be in the legislature just might come out as an informant, pretend to be one of you, go back to Salt Lake and complain, oh, we've got communities popping up. we got to pass legislation. Now, they may not mention Riverbed Ranch specifically, but they might put things in the bill that relate to Riverbed Ranch targeting that. Is that a concern that you have? And now that we've seen what happened in Waco and uh, the Warren Jepps crowd, even though Warren Jepps was not a good guy, but they didn't do due process. Yeah, I mean, just in general, um, small communities with maybe outlying views, outlying from the mainstream to be targeted. Yeah, that that is a concern. And we as a society, what we have to be careful of, and this is one of the points I make in my book, we have to be careful not to blindly listen to propaganda and how to recognize propaganda against a group. In the case of Branch Davidians and the FLDS, what was put in them in, in the media was hyperbole. It was based on some truth, but then overinflated, especially in the case of the Branch Davidians. David Koresh no. was was portrayed as this like, like, like the, he was on the cover of Time magazine with flames behind him, as if he like was loving that his people burned to death. Uh, that's not at all what David Koresh. No, he was not bloodthirsty murderous in any way um as far as the evidence shows so um we have to be careful not to blindly follow and just believe whatever propaganda we hear about any different group and maybe there are some groups with some weird problems that need to be looked into and but then that yeah due process has to be followed and i'm sorry it's a free country and people get if they're not hurting anyone and they're not you know they get to live how they want to live yeah, now if somebody, let's say, left the Branch Davidian, David Koresh threatens them. Somebody says, oh, David Koresh threatened them. Yeah, and law enforcement would have every right to go in and talk to David Koresh and maybe have a trial or something, wouldn't they? If, in fact... Yeah, and again, I think the, the yeah. best case to be made against David Koresh was statutory rape. Yeah. For, um, his 14-year-old wife or two that he had. But even yeah. then, he should have had due process. due process. He should have been on trial along with whoever else was uh, a dis disgruntled member, should have been called to the stand and testified, shouldn't they? Yeah, let me read a quote from one of um, the attorneys from some okay. of the branch unions. Yeah. Um, it's, let's see, here we go, wait. Oh, I have lots of quotes, hold on a second. There's this one that is really good, here it is. This is from Jack Zimmerman, attorney for Branch Davidian, Steve Schneider, who perished in the fire. This is a quote. This is what he said um, in a, before Congress. Quote, the way things are supposed to happen in this country is when someone suspected of a crime, even if it's child abuse, even if it's capital murder, we give them a trial. The jury finds them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt before they go to sentencing. Then a jury or a judge sentences them and an appeals court makes sure the trial was conducted with due process. And then, and only then, we kill them. We don't kill them first, like happened in Waco on April 19th. Yeah, that's a good quote. Now, I want to bring this. What can we do to stop this? Because I think that we are not too far away from being the USSR, <coughs> in spite of the fact yeah. that I may have some liberal leanings or whatever. Let's just set that we're not too far away. 
what do we do? And do you think we're ever going, do you have any hope that we will, I don't know if we're going to get out of this, but do you have any hope that we can at least slow this down? Well, we, we have to hurry. Um, we don't have much yeah. time. Um, I'm actually this year in the process in the beginning stages of making the content of my book into a documentary to try to reach more people. I think it's key that um, we understand what Marxism is, what communism is. We need to understand that communism is the deadliest form of government in the world's history, killed far more people than Nazism. Um, it's highly corrosive. Marxism is the, the, the toolkit for how you get to communism. It's a, it's a tool. It's the, the, um, the way that you go about staging a revolution to tear down a society so a communist regime can come into power. We have Marxist ideologies up the wazoo all throughout our entertainment, all throughout our culture, entertainment, media, education at all levels um, and churches and everywhere, which way you go now to the point where there's even some teachers, there's preschool teachers that I saw yesterday, a preschool teacher bragging online about radicalizing preschool kids with, with sexuality and like the different genders, they have what they call the gender bread person and how oh. no kid is too young for this. And, and there's, I even saw a, a homework assignment. It was either preschool or kindergarten. This was in Canada, but it was a home, it was a homework assignment for kids to go back home and to explore themselves sexually and to, to draw a picture. And that was their homework. And wow. It was, it was and how old were these kids? They were preschool kids? Four or five years old. Jeez, that's and sickening. Welcome to a Brave New World. Have you read the book Brave New World? It's on my list. I've read many other dystopian novels, though. But hypersexualizing children as young as possible is and has been a Marxist tactic for over 100 years because that is the fastest way to destabilize a society is if the children are hypersexualized, um, destruction of the family, um, it just massively um, speeds things up. But what we need to do is we need to understand, and I go through this in my book and there's other places too, but what Marxism is, what it does, what it's doing in our schools, how did we get here with our schools? What is going on with our churches? We have churches now um, that are openly embracing queer and gender theories. They have, there's actually um, a, a video on YouTube I saw with a Christian clergyman, a drag queen and a child, and they were actually a few children. And they were teaching the children that when it says to be a peculiar people in the Bible, that here's a great example. The drag queen is a peculiar person and how this is very Christ-like to, to be like that. And um, promoting, it, it's just unbelievable 10 years ago, for, like from now, how fast things have, have gone. And it's only going to see a lot of people are pushing the brakes and calling these things out. And that is, and we need much more of that to continue. We need people taking this information to their leaders of their church, their clergy, and showing the different Marxist elements within their churches. And again, um, please get my book because I go into all of this in there and taking this to their school boards. I personally um, gave a copy of my book to every member of the Washington County, Utah school board, spoke at several of the meetings in the last year. I helped um, and some people donated to get a copy of my book to most of the principals of our schools, our public schools here in Washington County um, to try to educate. Um, unfortunately, we have our state school board in Utah. We have a couple couple good people, but we have some real bad apples pushing all these agendas. And most of them, I don't think even know what they're doing. They're, they are dupes that are just going along with this agenda, but we need to call these agendas out. And then if if the schools won't change, 
if the churches won't change, then we withdraw and say, sorry, we're out of here. Bye. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about that for a bit. Um, unfortunately, the attorney general, Merrick Garland, said that if you pro if you are opposed of CTR or whatever, and you speak about it at the school boards, you're yeah, a terrorist. Yeah. What yeah. happens then if, let's say, you're protesting and a whole bunch of people get arrested and then the media makes you look bad? How much can we really do? I, 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 this is an innocent question that I'm wondering myself. Step one, we need to realize that this is a possibility and we need to question every every person who's maligned in the media. We need to question, is this really a balanced view of this person? For instance, the January 6th, you know, defendants, for example, are these really people who deserve to be in solitary confinement, um, un not charged with a crime year, you know, month after month, even more than a year and treated like they're, you know, worthy of Guantanamo Bay. Is that really true? We need to question all of this and not believe it, um, search things out for ourselves. And as far as how to get, I don't know how to get changed enacted at the federal level. I focus in my book at the local level with churches and schools because that's. Oh, where I understand that. But if somebody, some policeman or somebody could come, oh, so and so is a terrorist. What do you yeah. do? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I know I'm on that list. I had someone quote unquote turn me into that list the, the day I published my book. <laughs> so wow. at least they told me they were going to. So. Um, I mean, I don't know. We have to rise up spiritually. And could some people take a big fall? Yeah, the Christian and the, for me, the Christians in the Soviet Union that held that flame through those 70 years of communist rule were such great examples that they were willing to go to be imprisoned for what they believed. They were willing to, to be um, persecuted for what they believed. And some of them, there's there was one man in particular, um, Vladimir Shulkov, he was the head of the True and Free Seventh-day Adventists. And looking at pictures of this man and reading his story, he was in the gulag. He spent like something like 25 years, maybe more, in the gulag in a couple different prison sentences. And the people, what they wrote about him, he was full of love. He was there in the gulag and he just exuded love. And one man wrote that, and who actually became a very prominent civil rights activist in the Soviet Union, very well-known, Sakharov. He said that Shulkov's example is what actually turned him back to Christianity. And he said it will be because of men like him that Russia will one day again be a Christian nation. So each hmm. individual and where our spirituality, where are we allowing ourselves to go down into anger and resentment? Or are we going to rise above that? And, you know, with God's help to be able to still have love for our enemies and to be a light, we get to be a light. What does that look like for you? That might be different than what it looks like for me. We need to tune in to God and we need to find out what are we, what are you here for particularly? I'm sure this podcast is part of it. What oh, am yeah. I here for particularly? We each need to tune in and know what our roles are and embrace those, those roles. And that's an individual path to follow. Yeah. Real quick. I know that this is contrary to what we're talking about, or mm -hmm. it may sound contrary, but let's talk about finding joy. Yeah. I know a little something about finding joy in dark places. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't mentioned this on my podcast at all, but I feel that maybe now is the appropriate time to mention this. And the reason I didn't mention it before is I didn't want sympathy. 
But I know what it's like to be in lockdown. I've been in lockdown. It is not fun. And one of the things that gave me joy was, believe it or not, doing this podcast or ordering food from DoorDash that I liked. Mm-hmm. I understand now, and I still think it's funny and entertaining, but I understand now people who might be financially strained and they get to go to, let's say, Texas Roadhouse and they roll their window down and say, hot diggity dog. Okay, I may not be that extreme, but I know someone that is. I get it now. Mm-hmm. She was finding joy in dark places. What do you say to that? Because I think that's important. It's crucial. That That is the great quest for not just our time, but probably all times is that. It's hard, isn't it? But it can happen when somebody gives you a piece of equipment that you like. It seems to lift your spirits up for a time, doesn't it? Or food that you like. Absolutely. If we get to find joy in, in our roles in life, even though there might be serious challenges. And I'm sure that the challenge, there's going to be, we're, we're going to be faced with challenges. We already are, but there's probably going to increase, but we get to rise up spiritually and yeah, find joy in these small things and be a light. Yeah. I'm sure even uh, Joseph in the Bible, Joseph of Egypt mm-hmm. found joy in his dark prison. Of course, he made friends with some of the people, but I'm sure he had his dark moments, don't you think? Of course, he's, he was human. Yeah. Um, I was reading recently about, golly, it was a it was a Buddhist monk who was imprisoned in Vietnam um, for, I can't remember how many years, a long, long time, and he made friends with his captors. And it was this, I can't remember I was reading this about, but he had shown so much love to his captors and the prison guards were just, it was shocking to them. Like, how could you love us? We've been imprisoning you and treating you awfully for 10 years. And this Buddhist priest was still had love. He had more love in his heart than ever, even after a lengthy period of imprisonment and probably torture too. And you read about people in the concentration camps who in spite of the horrific conditions in Nazi Germany, they may not just maintained their humanity, but they rose above it spiritually. That can only be possible with having God in our hearts, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, where can people find your book? And is it on Audible or are you going to put it in Braille or something yeah. like that? I'm, 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 um, I, I need to do the Audible. Thank you for reminding me. Right now it's available as a hard, um, a hard copy, a paperback version, or the ebook version on Amazon. Um, you can go to Amazon and look it up. Beneath Sheep's Clothing: The Communist Takeover of Culture in the USSR and Parallels in Today's America. Or go to my website, beneathsheepsclothing.com. Also, from my from my website, people can um, download for free the first couple chapters of the book. And um, there's some great information in there. The first part of my book goes into the treatment of well, the Soviet anti-religious tactics. Um, I also have on my website, I'm putting together some home lessons for parents to teach their teenagers about freedom and tyranny and wokeism. And the, the first lesson is free. Why does freedom matter? Um, the other two lessons, I think I have them up for like $15 for two, for, for both of them. Um, really in depth, they come with links to different videos, different resources on YouTube to, to illustrate it further. So our teenagers understand what tyranny looks like, what freedom is, why it matters, and what and the ideology of wokeism, what it is, how it operates, and what it's for. Um, and then again, making my documentary. If anyone 
uh, we are going to be raising, do, doing fundraising for that soon. If anyone um, knows someone who might want to help fund this documentary to get this information out um, to a broader audience, please email me at beneathsheepsclothing at gmail.com. Yeah, you got to change your address to Protel Mill, but that's okay. We'll use that <laughs> for now. Yeah. All right. Uh, don't worry. I, well, we won't get into that, but uh, yeah. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to go over before we end the podcast? Thank you so much for spending this a lot of time. I know you're busy. Well, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm always glad to talk. I am very passionate about um, exposing what communism truly is, how it operates, what it did to Christians and what lessons we can glean from that and, and, and really see how we really need to wake up right now. All right. Well, thanks very much, Julie. I would like to have you back on again because there's some oh. things I didn't get to. We'll do a part two sometime down the road. Sounds good. Thank All you right. so much. Julie. I will talk to you later, folks. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life Podcast.